You're listening to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell, and today's episode is about space. 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 All right, so let's talk about space. About space. Space. Um. That's right, space. And our guest is astrophysics graduate student Tristan Matthews from Northwestern University, who just got back from performing a really crazy experiment at the South Pole. So if you're an astrophysicist, there's a lot of things you can study. Space is really quite big. The thing that Tristan focuses on for his PhD work is um, he studies how stars are born. There's basically a very specific scientific question that we're trying to answer, our group in particular, but lots of other groups are there to answer other things. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, if you've seen Hubble pictures of the Orion Nebula, those, those like giant, gaseous, gorgeous-looking mm-hmm. nebula, we basically study clouds a lot like those, but not those in particular, because those are usually more high mass. You know, the ones that you see pictures of are the ones that look really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to study the really boring ones, because we want the ones that are very simple, mm-hmm. so that way they're simple to understand, so that way you can cleanly test theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and the question isn't, uh, what, 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 what the question is, is that we know that stars are born. Mm-hmm. The, the, those are stellar nurseries is the term that people use. Mm-hmm. So we know the stars are born there, but we don't exactly understand the microphysics of how you go from the cloud of dust to the stars. Mm. Like, clearly the dust collapses right. and you get a star. But what sets the rate at which that happens, what sets the mass of stars that you get from the mass of dust, mm-hmm. um, what what sets the, the efficiency... Uh, very simple, like, naive gravitational models where you're like, I have a dust, so there's some dust pressure because it has some temperature, and mm-hmm. then it weighs something. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so there's gravity. You can run through those, and you basically get that those clouds should collapse so fast that there shouldn't be any of those clouds left in the universe. Mm. <laughs> but we clearly see them, so we have pretty good observational evidence that that simple theory is wrong. <laughs> um, and, then, and then there are two pretty strong camps about why it is that they're still there and what it is that's controlling the star formation rate. So, 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 so we have two observations and we're trying to connect them. One is those clouds are clearly there. Okay. The other is we have the population of stars that are observed. Okay. It's pretty easy to go count stars, um, hmm. and 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 to measure their their masses and spectral types and everything. So, so you have this nice stellar population curve, mm-hmm. and you have these clouds of dust. And the question is, why is that the stellar population curve, mm-hmm. right? How is it that you get from these clouds of dust to that population of stars, mm-hmm. right? What, what sets the masses of stars? What sets the rate at which stars form? Mm-hmm. All, all of these things. It turns out that stars being born in these clusters of gas out in space is actually a contentious issue that physicists have been arguing about for some time. The pithy way to say it, which probably will offend the you know, the weird scientists if they're listening, but I'm just going to assume they're not, (laughs) is back in the 70s, you had a bunch of theorists who had this question, um, and they were looking for a nice, simple answer Mm -hmm. that that they could actually test that would, you know, give them tenure-track jobs and they could publish a bunch of papers on. So they came up with this theory, which is that you model the clouds as being spherically symmetric Mm -hmm. and having smooth, constant magnetic field running through them. Mm. And then you do some math, and you get that the fields must be this strong, and then it gives you the stellar populations and everything, and, and we've answered the, the question, 
Now observers go out there and measure the strength of these magnetic fields that we've predicted exist in our spherically symmetric uniform clouds. Um, and that's a really hard measurement to make, so no one was really able to do it mm -hmm. for, like, like yet. Mm -hmm. but, but because you had all these people who got tenure-track jobs off of that, that became dogma. This strong magnetic field case. Mm -hmm. um, and then 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you had this young crop of theorists who wanted to get tenure-track jobs <laughs> and now had really good computers, and they needed to define the world in their terms so that that way they could get their own tenure-track jobs. Mm. And if you have a question and you have a theory, but that theory hasn't been that supported with evidence, well, then you generate a lot of press by saying this theory must be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and what you do is you model these clouds with your computers, mm -hmm. but your computers, it's the late 90s, so they're not that smart. So you can't put in magnetic fields. So you just pretend they don't exist. Oh my goodness. And, and you do it in two dimensions because, oh, yeah, you know, that's easier. Um, <laughs> and, and you ignore self-gravity because, you know, self-gravity is hard. Okay. These long-range forces. But then, but then you get these predictions that give you the proper stellar mass populations. And you say, ha-ha, I have solved it. <laughs> and then when the old theorists say, what? That's, that's completely wrong. Haven't you read any of my papers? Uh, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, they say, yeah, but we're not making any worse assumptions than you are. And, and, and it devolves into gridlock pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, now, now, that, now we have pretty good simulations mm -hmm. that, that have magnetic fields and turbulence um, and, and long-range gravity and, and, and three dimensions and are really great. Um, but we still don't have the really good solid observations of the magnetic field strengths and of these clouds mm. to, to distinguish this is what's happening or this is what's happening, this is what's controlling it. So basically you have these two opposing theories and the only thing that can really help distinguish between the two is by getting some actual data, getting some observations of these stellar phenomena, what these crazy physicists do is they attach a telescope to a giant helium balloon and send that up into our outer atmosphere, almost in space, just so they can have a really good look at these clouds of gas. You want to look at the clouds in thermal emission, mm -hmm. but the clouds are very toasty warm at like 12 Kelvin. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, you know... 300 and, or 280 something degrees below room temperature yeah. in Celsius. Yeah. Um, doesn't sound too toasty to me. No. Um, I'm so, not a baby star. So, 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 and they, <laughs> and they don't glow very brightly. So, so, and, and the wavelength that they do glow at is absorbed by the atmosphere. It's absorbed by water in the Earth's atmosphere. Oh. Uh, so, so we go to places like Hawaii, not just because they're nice, but because when you go on top of a mountain there, it's, it kind of looks like Mars. And, and the sky conditions are very clear, and you try to observe these, but it's, it's still a really hard measurement to make. Um, so, so people have been trying to make this measurement for a long time and, and haven't really come to, like, like there, there are some hints either way, and we think, we think that probably what it is is it's the, what, what everyone probably assumed it was for the entire time, which is it's the messy case in between, mm -hmm, yeah. where, where, where there are magnetic fields, but they're nowhere near, but the clouds are nowhere near uniform, so mm -hmm. turbulence matters also, so like... You can't write down the equations and you can't simulate it because it's messy and in between. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so we're actually trying to make those measurements. And, and by putting our telescope on a balloon, we go up to 130,000 feet or like 32 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And you get above basically all of the water in the Earth's atmosphere and most of the atmosphere itself. 
mm-hmm. and, and you're almost at space, and you get away, and, and we do it relatively cheaply compared to a satellite mission. I think mm-hmm. the the number we throw around is something like $10 million. For the balloon? For Well, I mean, I think the balloon itself costs something like a million dollars, and the helium that you put in the balloon costs something like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mm. But like, but like a, a, a funded balloon campaign, it might be $10 million for us to get, that counts the two flights, so it's $5 million a flight or something, mm. you know, but, but paying all the graduate students and building everything and stuff, yeah. um, you know, but, but like a satellite, which, you know, stays up there a lot longer and does a whole lot more science, you're talking, you know, half a billion dollars, Yeah. right? So, so if, 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 if we can make measurements that'll answer the core science question, with for five million dollars or ten million dollars, well, then that's a lot cheaper than a satellite. Mm-hmm. And then it also is the opportunity uh, on our project, like most of it's built by graduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any, you know, we have two sort of research scientists and then professors, and currently we don't have any postdocs. We have a bunch of old, jaded graduate students. Um, <laughs> I am familiar with the species, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, but, but, but it's, it's all built in, it's, it's just this great training platform to try to do the science yeah, by, yeah. by graduate students since, uh, they quite reasonably wouldn't let me build parts <laughs> that were going to fly on a satellite because it's like, like the risks are just too expensive, yeah, right? Yeah. But, but they will let me take may, you know, flight critical roles on a balloon experiment because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I mess up, it's still bad, but it's, it's a lot cheaper than, than a satellite messing up. Um, yeah. And being put in a situation where you have a flight, you know, you're like, if I mess this up, then the flight fails and then everyone's let down. You know, th- there's nothing that gets you real experience and stress and like, <laughs> I'm going to do this right. Like, if I mess this up, we're out $5 million, um, you know. Oh. But the thing is, is that there's so many moving parts that there's 15 people on the team or 20 people on the team who all have a system that's that way. Yeah. So, so you all have to rely on each other and double check each other. So the tricky thing about attaching a telescope to a giant balloon is that there's a lot of things that can potentially go wrong. And these can actually be kind of hilarious as long as it's not happening to you. I was at UC Santa Cruz working on my master's the first time somebody suggested to me I work on a balloon project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was for more cosmic ray stuff. And and my advisor wanted me to go to Sweden and calibrate a magnetometer and fly it and... It was it was a relatively small thing, but I was kind of like, "Are you insane? <laughs> like, why would I want to strap my thesis to a balloon? Like, like this cannot end well." And and I'd heard lots of stories about this not ending well because the stories where it doesn't end well are much better than the stories where it does end well. You know, the like, "Oh yeah, everything worked perfectly. PhDs for everyone. It was great." Like, you know, okay, like that's exciting, but the. Uh, like, yeah, well, then, you know, the balloon went, and then we had to cut down because it looked like it was going towards Russia, and we're not allowed to fly over Russia because, you know, spy balloon or something. So we cut down, so we landed in this forest in northern Sweden, and then, this isn't us, for the record, this is somebody else's balloon, and it comes down, and the whole thing lands fine, except for we landed next to this tree, and the branch goes exactly through my part of the thing, left everybody else's stuff alone, but shatters the crystal that's my thing, and, you know, it's this incredibly, you know, and, and there's just lots of stories like that out there yeah. about, like, they, um... You know, yeah, so we in the 80s, you'd have balloon failures a lot more. So, oh, yeah, you know, we got everything ready. We spent years of our work. We go down to McMurdo. We launch it. The balloon fails, and it falls into the Arctic. 
the Antarctic Ocean, and you're just like, oh, well, let's build another one, try that again, and then they do that, and then they launch it, and then it falls into the Antarctic Ocean. Like, you know, they make for funny stories, uh, so long as it doesn't happen to you. There must be a lot of beer drinking that happens in McMurdo. There is a lot. <laughs> yeah. But all, and all around. So not only does Tristan have to attach his telescope to a giant balloon, but he has to do this at the South Pole. We're there because it's day, 24 hours a day. So the balloon always is in the sunlight. Mm -hmm. So it's always roughly the same temperature. So its altitude doesn't vary. Mm. And since the balloon isn't sealed, it's not like a party balloon. It's like a hot air balloon. It's open <laughs> at the bottom. Um, if it cools down, then it sinks in altitude. And then when it heats up, that gas expands and some of it leaks out. So you lose elevation for every day-night cycle you have. Mm -hmm. And we lose a little bit of elevation as the sun rises and sets a little bit, like, in the sky. Yeah. But it stays up the whole time. So in order for Tristan to do his experiment, he first needs to travel to Antarctica. So I flew down on a Air Force jet, which is a C-17, which is one of the really big jets that they can, like, drive tanks into or whole helicopters. Wow. And I can't remember how many of us there were but but there are rows along the side of it that, that you get on and then they put pallets of seats in the middle and then a whole bunch of cargo mm -hmm. so so you just fly in and then uh, early in the season you land on the sea ice runway which is like just a couple miles outside of base you like landing you just like you know taxi up into base mm -hmm. and, and you're there uh and, and, and by taxi you take the terra bus yeah um <laughs> which is this giant canadian built thing um <laughs> bus everybody makes fun of because it's this giant bus with like eight foot six foot i don't know huge wheels mm -hmm. that goes like wumpa 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 as it hits things because <laughs> the wheels are so you know the suspension um and it's just like a big school bus that you know drives around antarctica um so so you fly down on the c-17 and that's a five and a half hour flight mm -hmm. um that's incredibly loud so like i put on earplugs and noise canceling headphones mm -hmm. um and then, like, I think, listen, like, kind of had music on or whatever, but, like, you couldn't really hear it. You had earplugs on under your noise-canceling headphones, and, like, there's just no way to talk to anybody. Mm. I mean, you can, like, yell at them or write stuff down or something. Um, wow. Is that just from the, the engines? Yeah, it's, it's like a normal commercial liner. You know how it's loud? There's a whole bunch of insulation mm -hmm. on, a, on a military jet. They just don't put in the noise insulation because <laughs> it's not worth the weight or whatever. Yeah. That way you can drive bigger things in there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it's just really loud. So the accommodations at the South Pole are pretty nice considering that, well, it's the South Pole, but there are some important things to consider. You're, you're either in a double or a triple, although this was the first year that the new contract was, so there's all of this excitement about the, like, am I going to be in a double or a triple? Because one of those is clearly preferable to the other because it's the same size room. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so like, and, 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 and in the room, there, there's, there's certainly a good bed and a bad bed where the good bed is the one back by the window and then usually you set up the wardrobe so there's a bit of a divider and the bad bed's the one by the door now the uh, bad bed gets like a bit more room and there's a desk and stuff you get access to but like having like a space that some, nobody else walks through so like this year it was very weird because i because like when i went down two years ago i was all like holy crap i'm in antarctica and this year all i could think about was like gotta get to the housing gotta get my key gotta run to the room gotta claim the good bed um and and like and and luckily i did that because i was like the first person to like hop in the line for the housing thing ran and grabbed my linens hit the room somebody else who was on my plane was in the same room with me mm -hmm. and and got the bad bed so like you know 
It was it was sort of one of those. It, it very much felt like you know I always describe McMurdo as like a big sciencey summer camp. Yes. Yeah, and and it and it very much has that attitude of there's like the new campers who are like wandering all blurry eyed with cameras going like oh my god and then there are people <laughs> like like even if you've only been there once before you're like slightly old and jaded and you're like gonna get stuff done. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go look at the sites later. So at the base this year there are about 900, 950 people this past winter, which is summer at the South Pole. And out of those 900 or so people, about 250 of them were scientists. And the rest of the people are kind of the support staff that serve to keep everything running smoothly. Some of these people can be very helpful and also very unique. Oh my God, there are some crazy people who it. Um, the, the, the joke about McMurdo, and I guess this is an article in general, but I've only you know, spent most of the time at McMurdo, is the first time you go for the experience, mm-hmm. and this is for the contractors, not the scientists, the second time you go for the money, because if you're down there for five months, whatever the summer season is, and, and they have your room and board, even though they're not paying you very much, you don't have any expenses, so if you're 20-something, it, it makes sense for the money. Um, and then they say, and the third time you go, cause you don't fit in anywhere else. <laughs> um, so, so one of the people who maintains the snow roads there is named Jules. And I believe she's been down there. Her and one of the divers hold the record for the most consecutive seasons or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's over 20. I don't think it's 30 yet, but you know, and, and, and by experience, like the, the reason McMurdo works is because you have certain people like that who've been doing it for so many years that they have these specialized knowledge sets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you want to hire somebody who knows how to maintain Antarctic snow roads in weird weather conditions, right? Like, there aren't that many people in the world who know how to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, their experience and everything is incredibly valuable in, like, what makes the base work. These contractors are especially important because when things go wrong at the South Pole, it's a lot harder to fix them. So, so the balloon launch vehicle had a transmission problem this year. Mm-hmm. And we were very afraid that it was going to cancel the launch season. Not because it was something that no one there didn't know how to fix or anything, but, but they were in a situation of, okay, there's a transmission problem. Well, um, and, and if we're trying to rebuild the transmission for this like very specialized custom-built vehicle, in Antarctica, right? It's, it's not like you can have the part FedEx there the next day. So, so like, do, do you order a new transmission? Do you order, like, all the parts you think it might be that are broken, you know? Yeah. So so they ended up ordering some parts and, and checking them and, and determining it wasn't one of the things that would cause it to, like, get anybody to get hurt or whatever. So I believe we launched this year with only even-numbered gears. <laughs> it's, it's an automatic transmission, and, and like, they, it was, it was, they either couldn't use... One, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it was only, it was only even number. They couldn't use, you know, first gear, third gear, fifth gear, seventh gear or something going forward <laughs> or maybe going in reverse because it, it goes both ways very quickly, very quickly for how big it is and the fact that it's carrying our payload with a balloon, right? And, and like, they never started in first or something, so that wasn't the worry, but the worry was that if there was high surface winds, they couldn't get going fast enough up into seventh or something, so, so they ended up just launching anyways, but, you know, there, there was this tense week where we were like, oh my God, are we going to not get, get our launch window mm-hmm. because there's a transmission problem with the launch vehicle. Mm-hmm. And like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 it's one of those things that you just don't, you don't run into those problems other places because, uh, you know, it's a custom built vehicle in a weird environment. 
So Tristan and the other balloon-launching physicists don't perform these experiments from the base itself. They actually go to this site about seven miles away from the base. McMurdo Station itself is on a volcanic island, um, Ross Island. So if you look at a Google map of McMurdo, you might be like, Tristan didn't go to Antarctica. Tristan went to an island next to Antarctica because it shows the area around it as blue. Mm. Um, but most of that, a small chunk of that blue is, if, if you look at the satellite version, you can see a small piece of it, which is sea ice, which melts every year. And the rest of it is a glacier, which is thousands of years old or mm -hmm. whatever, right? So, you know, uh, when I go to work every day, you drive in the Terrabus, um, <laughs> the seven and a half miles from McMurdo out onto the ice shelf where the balloon base is, um, which is on the Ross ice shelf, um, and, and you work out there on this enormous flat thing where all the buildings are on skis because every winter they, they, they mound up like, like, like they build berms and then tow the buildings up there with giant tractors so that that way they don't get buried at all by the snow. So they don't have to dig them out next year. They just pull them down okay. and, and set up the base again every year. So, so yeah, so we work in these giant ski buildings. So Tristan and his physicist friends are at the launch site, and they're about to launch this balloon. So what what is this balloon like? So so the balloons are something at float, like 100 meters in diameter. Mm. Um, and they're made out of slightly thicker than your, like, kind of translucent garbage bag material. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's why I'm like, you're insane. I'm not putting my thesis <laughs> on a balloon, and then I did it twice. Um... You know, uh, and they, uh, the, the telescope, our telescope had a science payload weight of about 4,000 pounds, mm -hmm. um, plus something like, I can't remember if it's a thousand or two, I think it's 2,000 pounds of NASA stuff also. And I think that counts the weight of the parachute and everything. Mm -hmm. That might even count the weight of the balloon. Um, I can't remember, but, but the science payload weight, like, like they can get, you know, 4,000 pounds of science up to 130,000 feet. Um, and, and when it's up there, you can eat, just naked eye see it from the ground it float. Mm -hmm. like, like it's not really big, but I mean, you can see a plane flying over Chicago, that's at 40,000 feet or something. The balloon's much, much bigger and much, much higher. Mm -hmm. So the launch day is always a bit of a surprise because like many things in life, it depends on the weather. And this can be an incredibly tense moment, a very emotional moment for the scientists involved in this balloon launch and this stellar experiment. So the launch day was exciting. Uh, so we... It so, was Christmas, right? Yeah, so, so well, it was Christmas here. Mm -hmm. um, but we're New Zealand time at McMurdo. So it was the 26th there, the mm -hmm. morning of the 26th. And, and McMurdo does a pretty good effort to do holiday stuff, right? So, so there was a Christmas party, I want to say on the 24th. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they had a... Uh, I can't remember what they're called, but it's a tracked vehicle for, for driving around on the ice. They have a flatbed on the back of it with a bench with Santa uh, and Mrs. Claus. And we all went up there as a collaboration and sat on Santa's lap, or one of us did, uh, and took some pictures and said, this year for Christmas, Santa, we will launch. <laughs> and we were joking because we knew it wasn't going to happen because the weather predictions have gotten pretty good over the last couple of years. And they said the weather was going to be horrible till the 29th. And, and when the models say the weather's going to be good, there's something like a one in four chance you actually launch mm -hmm. uh, historically. This year it was much better. 
Um, <clears throat> so we're like, there's no way it's going to happen, but we asked for, you know, we want to launch on the 26th, Santa, make this happen. <clears throat> so Christmas morning, um, one of the NASA guys who controls it is like, did you hear? You know, and I was, you know, to somebody else, and I was like, hear what? Uh, over here in the conversation, and Buddy in, he's like, oh, there's talk of a possible launch opportunity tomorrow. Mm. And I was like, what? When? <laughs> you know, t tell me your estimated time for launch, because I'm responsible for the schedule. <laughs> so if I, so if we might be launching 24 hours, that affects our observing schedule, I need to be working now. Oh my goodness. So, so I got his guess, and I ran off, and I start working. But I'm working, like, frantically trying to make sure everything's exactly right, because if we launch with a schedule, that's, like, basically our observing schedule. If things go wrong... But in the back of my mind, I'm like, there's no way we're going to launch, you know. Yeah. Um, we end up going to the weather briefing, and, and they're like, so there's this slight window for about two hours tomorrow morning where we think this hole's going to open up, and there might be a launch opportunity, but maybe not. So so we're going to monitor it, and we're going to be ready to launch, but, you know, don't don't hold your breath or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But, but, we're, but, you know, we're definitely going to show up and be ready for it. Mm -hmm. So we show up, and it starts looking like it's going to happen. And, but everybody's like, it's not going to happen. You know, you never launch in your first rollout. Um, and then and then we get closer, and then we roll out, and it, it's it's like a perfect launch day. Mm. Like, like there was this little unstable window that, that I guess a couple years ago the models wouldn't have been good enough to predict was going to happen, mm -hmm. that, that we were just there and ready for and just caught this, like, two hours of calm weather mm. in, in the morning of the 26th and launched. Um um, so, so we set up and the balloon goes and we're out there for inflation and we got tons of amazing pictures and we're like, oh my God, this is going to happen because usually you, you go out there and you set up and then the idea is, you know, th this isn't happening until they take the balloon out of the box. Because once they take the balloon out of the box, if they have to put it back into the box, they probably have destroyed the balloon. <laughs> right? Because imagine, you know, if, if you unfold the garbage bag and you try to fold it back up again, like you, you're not, it's, it's going to get crinkly and, you know, you, mm -hmm. and then you're like, I'm not hanging my thesis off that. <laughs> so they take the balloon out of the box and we're like, oh my God, this is happening. And then inflation takes about an hour because that's a lot of helium to yeah. put into the balloon. Um you know, and then and then it starts going up, and then the the first day of the flight, it's it's basically on a launch day. No one sleeps for thirty six hours to two days, mm -mm. um, because because there's all the time prepping to launch, mm -hmm. and then there's the launch, and then there's okay, check all the systems, check this, focus the telescope because you have about twenty four hours of line of sight communication, which is you know mm -hmm. high speed internet access to the mm -hmm. balloon. Um, and right as we get to float on the first day, we have two star cameras, and they're what tell us where we're looking, and one of them dies. Oh. Um, and we know it's dead because we have a TV monitor broadcasting hooked up to its monitor port on that computer. Mm -hmm. And the monitor port gives you the nice little com blinking command line that says, uh, valid boot disk not found. Uh, please insert boot disk or press any key or, or something like that. <laughs> And, you know, and this and this is the no whole, like, problem. when have you had an experiment work right for two weeks in a row? Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then this is just sitting there being like, oh, my God, we know what's happened. It's at 130,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Guess that computer's dead. And, and, then, and then this is just sitting there being like, oh, my God, we know what's happened. It's at 130,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Guess that computer's dead. Uh, and then, and then everything after that goes pretty well, uh, until about day six of the flight when, when we slew away from, uh, a part of the sky in Vila that we were mapping, making a really deep map of it, which is, which was our primary, well, one of our two main science things over mm -hmm. to Lupus, which is the other main science thing, the one that I've actually been specializing in. Mm -hmm. And we start mapping that and then the other star camera dies. Uh. 
And then, you know, there's some potential for drinking, but I don't think there actually was any drinking uh, and a lot of swearing. And then, and, and at some point, somebody made the comment of, well, you know, if we'd come down here for a six-day flight, we would have come down here for a six-day flight. So the astrophysicists were hoping to get 12 full days of recording from their balloon. But because the first camera died during the launch, and then the second camera died after six days, they only got six days of data. So that was a bit of a disappointment for them. But the six days worth of data that they got is incredibly good and might help them um, finally answer some of these outstanding questions. If if the data is what we think it is, then we've made the best map of this kind of cloud ever made in a mission. For, you know, for, for answering the question we're trying to answer, we've made the best map to do that, mm -hmm. we think. But we haven't analyzed the data. And, and I'm sure there's somebody out there in the world that would argue with that statement. But, you know, it's... it's sure, there always is. Yeah. But, you know, but that's, but that's the exciting, like, okay, so we think we have this great data. Now let's go analyze it. So this type of scientific research is really high risk and high gain. So it's easy to see why it becomes such an emotional roller coaster for the scientists involved in this experiment. And Bart Netterfield, the Canadian PI, who's really good at this and great and has done a ton of balloons and a bunch of very successful experiments and everything. Um, he did it two years ago. He did it this time. I believe he does it every time. Is on launch day, and while it's going up, he says, this is it. This is my last one. I am never doing another one of these again. <laughs> this is way too stressful. It is way too much work. And it is way too big of a gamble. Yeah. You know, because it's it's it's, it's, it's a hell of a way to do science, right? You know, let, let's put all of our eggs in one basket. And, yeah, you know, <laughs> tie the basket to a balloon. Um, you know, so... And, and, and he's going down again next year for another experiment, right? Mm. And that's one that's been in the works. But, you know, I believe that every time it's like, there's no way I'm not doing this again. This is too crazy. But as Tristan explained to me, despite the stress, it's incredibly exciting. And there's plenty of jobs out there that will give you the same amount of stress without the thrill of scientific discovery. It's, it's, it's incredibly stressful. Yeah. It, it, it's like, ah, stressful. Um... But, but what I always tell people who aren't scientists or whatever and, and stuff is that, and I always tell the other scientists when they're talking about how stressful it is, when I have stress dreams these days, they're about two things. They're about the undergraduate math department at Berkeley, because mm. that was not a happy, friendly place, and they're about waiting tables. <laughs> I have never had a stress dream about launching a balloon. Now, maybe that's just because I used to be a waiter at a very stressful restaurant in a different environment or whatever, mm -hmm. but like... It's incredibly stressful, but it's a very intellectual stress, a very different stress. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's funny, but like, when I'm in Antarctica, freaked out about the balloon, I will wake up from a stress dream that's about waiting tables. Because <laughs> that's the way my subconscious does it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly stressful, but, like, there are lots of stressful jobs in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's, 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 that's, like, a little, like, anecdotal thing that I always tell people that aren't scientists. Is that, like, you know, you're like, oh, my God, I'm, you know... Space, balloons, Antarctica, it's so stressful, pity me. And it's like, but, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the, the, the waiters and the other stuff, like, also have incredibly stressful jobs. It's just very different. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a different payoff-reward structure, but, but I always find that amusing. Uh, one of the people in our collaboration, like, I've heard, much as I've heard hilarious stories about balloon failures, I've also heard hilarious stories about scientists stress dreams who involve ballooning <laughs> things like something's broken and they drive out to the telescope on their motorcycle and climb up onto it to take off the window cover <laughs> um and then realize that they're at you know 
20,000 feet and have to jump or they're riding, you know, like, like people have crazy stress dreams in every field. And, and, and when you mix balloons and Antarctica in, like they get even weirder. But I just think it's funny that mine are never about that. They're yeah. about waiting tables because, you know. Well, if there's one good take-home message from this show, it's that being an astrophysicist is a lot more fun than waiting tables. And on that note, um, that's it for our show today. If you'd like to hear more from us, feel free to check us out on our website, grox.net. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and on websites like archive.org and iTunes. So feel free to look us up. We have over 500 episodes. From everyone at Grox, including myself, Charles Lee, Frankling, Elise Kovic, and Forrest Golden, have a fantastic week and keep on grokking.